Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And birds. And birds in the background. surrounded by birds. Hey, and listen, I am just glad to be here today because I wasn't sure if I was going to make it because I wasn't sure if I could find gas for my car. That's true. (laughs) It has been... Yeah, yes, it's been a wild time in Charlotte trying to find gas. And what I have known, what has been confirmed to me, is that the gas shortage here really had nothing to do with the pipeline disruption and everything to do with hoarding. We didn't have a gas shortage. We had an oversupply of fear and greed. But what this does make me realize is if there is any sort of disaster, we are in big trouble because we, anyway. Well, we think individually instead of collectively, and not collectively yes, and, yes. Um, which is interesting for a community that prides itself as being so Christian the whole neighbor love is not uh, practicing that by not getting gas unless you really need it let me is, get mine first yeah and for my car <laughs> and right. for my boat and for my RV and all my gas containers and perhaps just in case I need it for the generator sure <laughs> anyway that is not what's astonishing you what is astonishing you Well, um, let's see. A couple of days ago, I um, had taken our Matthew to school and decided to go to Starbucks, get a cup of coffee, and just drive around our town a bit. And I was driving, you know, we live out of the city, and so kind of driving out what in what some would call the country, and uh, passed by one of the um, churches in our presbytery. And I'm typically not a person that notices church signs. But this church out in the county has a, I believe it's a hand-painted sign, and I've seen it a million times. And it's simply the words of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I've driven by this church a million times, seen this sign a million, million times, but the other day I was deeply moved by it. And my, my first thought as I drove by the church was, um, yeah, that, that's in the Bible. And then my second thought was, but Jesus said that. Jesus said that. And, and I started to think about the, the times we're in and how there are so many people who name the name of Jesus who are embracing philosophies and uh, theologies that are anti-Christ. And um, I don't know, I was just in that moment. I mean, it, it brought me to tears. I was deeply moved by those words. And I don't think it's an accident that on Monday, uh, you know, you and I signed up for this preaching conference, the Festival Homiletics, and I was listening to Bishop Curry preach, the uh, the bishop who preached the the royal wedding. And uh, he was preaching from John and preaching uh, the Gospel of John and preaching the words of Jesus. But he said this, because he was also reflecting on these times in which we're living. And he said that he went on a sabbatical and was studying, um, I believe, uh, some some teaching of Jesus. But anyway, he was also studying um, slavery and uh, preaching during those days and he said he noticed a pattern that those who are pro-slavery 
never mention the teaching of Jesus. It's always the Old Testament. It's always cherry-picking Paul. And he said he noticed that with the abolitionists, they always go to the words of Jesus. Um, and that really struck me in his sermon. And and um, and my driving past that church was before I heard that sermon. But it, that's, that's just astonishing me in, in these days. Um, the powerful words of Jesus and the, the power of Jesus to um, cut through the the fog, the misinformation, the lies of what's uh, what, what's antichrist in the world today, the, the white supremacy, yeah. the, the nationalism. Um, and I, I'm just astonished by that. Well, I, I mean, we were talking about that another angle on that when we were walking earlier this morning because what strikes me about that is you know as the culture wars tear through the country and the church and culture wars we know are just act one of war wars um so we nurture them to our peril right and and we were just saying you know everyone believes that they are speaking righteousness i mean there might be some extreme bad actors who are completely self-aware hypocrites, but, but most people who are lining up and choosing a side are choosing the side that they understand to be righteousness. Even if, even if self-interest is, you know, warping their understanding of what righteousness is like, that's still their self-understanding is I'm lining up beside behind righteousness and, and no one chooses to do evil for the sake of evil if there is an awareness that an action is being taken that is evil, people always really sincerely believe that it's the only way to accomplish righteousness. And that is, you know, one of the things that is revealed to the Christ in the cross is that you cannot accomplish righteousness through an evil act, right? So this idea that it's not better that one man should perish for the sake of the nation, like you cannot end violence by doing violence. Like these things are truths that the world sometimes celebrates, sometimes reluctantly accepts, but this is a, this is something that culture presents as inevitable reality. And the cross of Jesus Christ reveals that to be a lie and a lie that God is absolutely standing against. Um, but it, it strikes me that when we understand that, you know, we are on, um, we are in this, stage in life where, I mean, in this moment in history where there is a very explicit culture war going on. And so there's going to be times that we're in alignment with one side or the other, or perceiving one side or the other, having more um, righteousness in it or being more closely aligned with the righteousness of God. Um, but whether you do evil for the sake of evil or do evil for the sake of righteousness, you're still doing evil, right? And I think that's what we often don't understand. And it strikes me that that idea of Jesus um, lifting up peacemakers as children of God is such a helpful kind of um, shibboleth. Um, this, so a shibboleth was this really fun, I mean, I just really like these stories from scripture, these kind of hidden stories in scripture that are not very popular, but it was... Um, an incident in the Hebrew Bible, 
I can't even totally remember the context, but they were trying to discern whether certain people were truly members of the 12 tribes or not. And so the um, the test was to have them pronounce a certain word. The word was shibboleth. And if they pronounced it with a, with a particular accent, then that would reveal them to be authentic members of one of the 12 tribes. And if they didn't correctly pronounce it, then that would reveal them to be imposters. And putting aside... Again, because I'd have to go and do more study about whether or not that was um, a good test or, or rightly administered or whatever. But this idea that there is one um, word rightly understood that can reveal one's true identity and fidelity to God. Um, I think peacemaking is that word, right? Because... Um, whatever side you're on in the culture war and the culture war that often poses as, you know, righteousness, right? Like a lot of people explicitly believe that fighting against is the way to honor God and even embody Jesus in the world. And many of those people are, I think, fighting for um, a truth that is of God or a reality that is of God. And, And honestly, on both sides, right? Like both sides have real elements of God's truth. And certainly people on both sides, we believe are deeply loved and redeemed by God. Absolutely. Um, but but the shibboleth is this idea of being a peacemaker, that, that there is a real spirit of zeal, of zealous enmity that is nurtured in both sides of the cultural war. So it's not enough to be for what you're for, it is more important to be against what you're against. And it's not um, about adopting an agenda and casting vision for a new way of walking together or living together. In many places, it's about saying these people who hold this ideology, they are the problem. And if we could just X them out, we then by default would all live righteously. And that's a lie. And, and it's a lie that Jesus's commitment to peacemaking clearly exposes because peacemaking is about not peacekeeping, but it is about walking. Shalom. Yeah, it's about shalom and it's about walking together in a way that even the people who oppose you become become your co-laborers and your travelers on the road. Right. Like that's it's so well exhibited in the story of. Saul becoming Paul, right? Like Saul is persecuting the church and Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus, not to destroy Saul, but to transform him, right? So when people are talking about peacemaking, that doesn't mean saying namby-pamby both sides and the way things are is fine. There are good or people the, on both sides. Right. I mean, that, that, I mean, and I don't, from a ontological perspective, there are good people on all sides uh, in the sense of people created in the image of God, people sure. redeemed by Jesus. But but from the side of saying all viewpoints are equally valid and all actions are equally valid, therefore it doesn't matter, you know, that that is not, uh, that's not true. And scripture is full of God revealing through the prophets that some behaviors are abhorrent to God um, and that those behaviors are often justified by religious people. Um, But I'm just saying the thing that helps me determine whether someone is truly walking with and speaking for Jesus is, are they casting vision for righteousness and for peacemaking? Peacemaking, not just among their own community, but peacemaking 
among their community and their enemies. And not everyone is doing that. Certainly people outside of the body of Christ are not doing that. And I think, you know, oftentimes inside of the body of Christ, we look at people within, you know, non-Christian organizations who say are doing the work of justice. And we say, well, I just really don't like the way they seem to be really against people, you know, against their enemies. And I'm like, but they're not Christians. So, so I don't know why you expect them to hold a Christian value, right? They don't hold a Christian value. And we've taught them that the church doesn't care about justice. So they're not turning to us for a model of another way to do the work of justice, right? But it is our um, job to, to, it's our call to do this work in relationship with Jesus. And Jesus is a peacemaker, which doesn't mean everyone's behavior is acceptable in the eyes of the Lord, but it does mean that we are called and equipped by grace to live righteously without leaving those we are so tempted to label unrighteous behind, right? That the grace of God that gives us a vision for righteousness, if it can give us a vision for righteousness, it can give anyone a vision for righteousness. And we're not proud of discerning the truth. We are humble and ready to invite other folks in, which means that's peacemaking, right? Um, So I do think We've, we've lost that in our zeal. Yeah, I, I think the danger for people on um, both sides of the culture war is this tendency to um, name the name of Jesus but not walk in the way of Jesus. And it's very easy to hold what you believe to be a right position but um, to use it as a weapon. Mm-hmm. Or just to feel hate and fear in your heart towards those who stand against you and that's natural and that's human and it doesn't make you evil, but it does mean that you're doing this work outside of the spirit of the Lord, right? And I just, as someone who is a follower of Jesus, and I say this without casting any dispersions on anybody else, I just don't think it's possible to do this work outside of the spirit of Jesus. I know it's not possible for me, right? Like I won't speak of other people, but I'm just saying, I know it's not possible for me to do this work outside of the spirit of Jesus, but the temptation to do it outside of the spirit of Jesus is strong. And I am susceptible to the accusation that if you're a peacemaker, that's because you're not committed to justice, right? Like if you are willing to be in relationship with folks on the quote other side, that's, you know, I don't think that's true, but I understand why people would hurl that accusation. And I don't, you know, I, I don't, expect people outside of the body of Christ to understand that. But within the body of Christ, we have to understand that, that how you treat your enemies is how you treat your Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have been trained both in terms of seminary and by the church to um, shy away from Jesus as model because we've been taught to shy away from the sort of works righteousness, right? We're not earning a place with God. And so we simply trust Jesus to save us, which is true all day, every day. Um, But the scripture does call us to follow in the way of Jesus, that Jesus is a model, not to earn anything, but because we have been given this grace. Jesus is truly and fully human. And so if we are going to be our best humanity, our full humanity, then we ought to walk in his way. And that's, I I know that um, that's probably something I haven't preached as much as I could have, should have. Um, my emphasis has been on um, Jesus as the, as the 
way to be saved. Is that true? Yes. Um, but also Jesus as a model for our humanity, I probably need to emphasize more in my preaching. I think, you know, one key to really unlock that, and this is a phrase that I, I'm with you, I need to preach this more so that when I use this phrase, people are like, oh, I know that. It's just this idea that there's there's two manifestations of grace, right? And so when we talk about what grace is, most people will say, will understand, and if this is correct and right, they will say grace is what is the quality of God that uh, through which I find forgiveness and salvation, right? So mm-hmm. grace is the quality of God that allows God to overlook my sin, to love me in and despite my sin, and is the quality of God that makes God desire to give me salvation through Jesus Christ. That's mm-hmm. what grace is. And that's true. And, and <laughs> grace is also that quality of God at work in and through us that makes us more than we naturally are. Grace is that quality of God at work in and through us that makes the ministry we do and the gifts we have magnified and a way of embodying the real presence of Jesus in the world. So grace I think is... Is also a sort of empowerment. Correct. I mean, grace is what makes... When the little boy in John 7, 9 offers up the five loaves and two fishes, Mm -hmm. grace is what turns them into the feast that feeds the 5,000, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about our natural righteousness, our natural talents, our natural gifts, our natural abilities and ministry, um, that's our five loaves and two fishes. But what we were promised is not just grace to get us to heaven when we die, but grace here and now because the spirit of Jesus lives in us. And so the same kinds of things that happened in the world when Jesus was embodied in one body in, you know, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, walking around 2000 and change years ago, those same kinds of manifestations of grace are happening in the world today. And we do what the people around Jesus did back then, which is a fumble the ball a lot and fail a lot, but also feebly offer gifts that through the presence of Jesus become more than they are, right? And so I think that we as believers often don't know that. So we shy away from peacemaking because we know in the natural, it's not possible. Can't love mm-hmm. my enemies. I certainly can't make peace with my enemies. There's no, you know, we, we say like, well, I know we're called to be involved in this way, but I'm not going to do that because I know I wouldn't make a difference. Well, that's true. You wouldn't make that's a difference. Right. Yeah. But you plus grace will make a difference. And the reality is grace is most often manifested in the lives of people who won't, can't make a difference, right? Because that is how grace is manifested in a way that glorifies the Lord, right? So we think, you know, certain people, famous people, important people, rich people, they can be vehicles of God's grace because they have resources that are sort of comparable in our eyes. And the reality is that's not where God shows up. God shows up in the widow's might. God shows up in the mustard seed. God shows up in the five loaves and two fishes. The grace of God is most commonly manifested in a way that people who see it can't help but understand that's nothing but God, right? One of the ways we've been saying that at Dorada Church, and I hope it catches on, not just because I start saying it, but I think it's helpful. Um, We've been repeating that the Holy Spirit is attracted to our weakness. Yeah, and so we shouldn't 
shy away from, be embarrassed or ashamed about our weakness. If the Holy Spirit, as Jesus taught in the Gospel of John, if the Holy Spirit is our advocate who comes alongside of us in power and strength, whenever we say, I got it, I, I can do this. And the Holy Spirit says, okay, okay, well, then you got it. Get on you, with your bad if you self. got it, then you got it. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead with your bad self. But when you acknowledge your weakness, when you say, you know, you know, I can't, Lord, would you help me? Well, the Holy Spirit is attracted to your weakness, not for condemnation or shame, but to help you. And that is a primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, and I think also... Yes, when we are offering our weaknesses to God for the sake of the kingdom. Now, when we say, I'm weak, so I'm out. I'm not going to try. Right. That's that, different. That's different. Yes. Because you're not invite, you know, you're not offering God to use your weaknesses. And I think, but again, we live in a society that is, um, you know, we're a deficit-based society. That's how we describe people, you know. So I, my friend Kaya was saying, she gave me the perfect example of this, that we describe a certain class of students in school as English language learners. And isn't that so interesting instead of calling them bilingual? We don't call them bilingual. We say they don't know English. Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. That's fascinating in, in terms of what it reveals about how we see people from a deficit mindset instead of from a strength mindset, yeah. right? And I think like that mindset creeps over into the church. And so what we want to offer God is our strengths and our power and our gifts because those are what we think are worthy and valuable mm -hmm. and what we want to hide from from God from ourselves and from our community is our sins and our weaknesses because we think well this is what we got to try harder and overcome or this is valueless and mm -hmm. and again the kingdom of God everything is to our perspective flipped upside down and you know God's strength is manifested in our strength no no that is not how it goes yeah. in our weaknesses and we don't understand that um i don't know how we got there from peacemaking but <laughs> well it's all about <laughs> right trusting jesus <laughs> walking in the way of jesus pastors <laughs> take a walk <laughs> take a verbal walk and who knows where it shows up yes so what's astonishing you um what is in my head um is that song i know you were like preemptively laughing this might not be funny at all i might be about to say something so poignant that it will move no. you to tears that is just rude but when you say what's in my head i i just know that what's coming is going to be it's really not good. now this setup is ridiculous oh, no. and i oh, cannot no. i i cannot um meet these expectations no what is in my so we are going to live stream from the sanctuary this sunday mm. so for the first time since june of 2020 that was the last time we live streamed from the sanctuary and we all got COVID. So we've been pre-recording and preparing a video ever since. Um, so we are going to live stream from our sanctuary for the next two weeks to sort of figure out some new equipment and some new practices so that when we welcome members from the congregation back the first Sunday in June, we have some of this technical stuff worked out. Um, and I've been longing for this day. <laughs> and now that it is so rapidly approaching um the what fear, is in my mind dread. yeah like it's I, if you you probably have not watched this because you are the father to a son and not daughters but um a couple years ago the movie frozen 2 came out which was not nearly as good as frozen one 
if you thought that was good. And um, the songs were not nearly as good either, but there was one song called Into the Unknown, which was mm. sort of like the catchy song from that movie, and it was really good. And that's just what is in my head now is <laughs> Into the Unknown. <laughs> like just this whole thing. Um, because, you know, on the one hand, we've, whatever. And I feel like this is so blah, blah, boring because everyone is going through this all the time, but I can't help it. I'm a verbal processor. So I, you know, we've been in the unknown for so long and what you think is we're getting back to the familiar, right? We're going back to doing the thing that we've done our whole lives and we know how to do it. And what is just so astonishing to me is sitting with the reality that oh this doesn't feel like a return this feels like the threshold of a utterly new thing and knowing that I mean again like everyone says this over and over again it's a new normal or nothing's the way it was and blah 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 and I get sick of it and even though I'm like sick of hearing people talk about it when you start to really accept how true that is it's it's just really astonishing and overwhelming and we um another thing that we talk about a lot at the grove um that i'm that i keep thinking i want to ask the session to make our sixth guiding principle is this idea that we want to be a community that practices that expects that honors um that we practice healthy spiritual discomfort that this idea that you know we are coming alive in christ we are becoming new people which in its essence means growing and changing and growth and change are uncomfortable. Even when they're good, they're uncomfortable. And so if we can't, if we cannot um, welcome discomfort, then we cannot welcome the movement of the Holy Spirit. Right. Mm, And so it's really important to say we practice healthy spiritual discomfort because there are some kinds of spiritual discomfort that are not healthy and Mm -hmm. that, you know, the spirit is is causing discomfort in us. And it's a sign that like, get out of here. You know, this is wrong. This is not for you. But, but there is an element of um, proximity to the holy that is both like holy good and deeply uncomfortable. And we have to recognize that and, and seek that kind of healthy spiritual discomfort out, even though it does not feel good. And so I think, you know, at this precipice of this moment that I've been so longing for, and the worst news I could get would be the news that we'll never go back to in-person worship again. Like that, that would be devastating to me to get that news. And yet on the precipice of coming back to in-person worship, that is also deeply uncomfortable. And it's just sort of interesting, you know, I'm putting a, a, a pretty word on top of it. Interesting. <laughs> it's interesting how, <laughs> trepidatious and uncomfortable I am at the threshold of this new stage um and I you know it reminds me of places that I've been before on the transformation path that we've been on at the Grove of just one of the things that is hard is just the lack of familiarity in anything it's just comfortable to be familiar um that is not always holy um so so but losing familiarity is really hard even if even if you were familiar what you're familiar with was unhealthy or not good right and that's a you know whatever psychiatrists and psychologists talk about that all the time that that you can become deeply familiar with 
destructive patterns of behavior or destructive systems or yes. destructive workplaces, or, you know, just mm -hmm. so that this is what you know, and there's just a comfort in the known, even if the known is bad. So anyway, I'm just astonished at standing on the threshold at this moment, which is what I've been longing for for so long, and yet it does not feel like a countdown to a party. It feels yeah. just really... I'm not complaining. I'm just telling the truth that mm -hmm. it does not feel the way that I thought it was going to feel. And um, I I don't, you know, we are stepping into the unknown. And that is, um, I think, faithful. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't, I don't, when I think about it for a second, it's expected, right? Um, but I'm like, all these times when I'm like, dang it, <laughs> like, here's God. <laughs> being God in exactly the ways that scripture and experience have prepared me to meet God. And yet here I am again, and it both does and doesn't get any easier. Listen, years ago, I wouldn't have done this, but these days I laugh when I hear people say things like, boy, I wish we could go back to the church in the book of Acts. Those people <laughs> really I love it, it when people tell on themselves. Right? So um, I'm reminded in this moment that in the book of Acts, after the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost, what happened? There was persecution of the church in Jerusalem, and it caused every single Christian, except for the apostles, to leave home to go somewhere else. The persecution was that bad. But the scripture says that they continued to talk about Jesus. They continued to spread the gospel. And as Luke tells the story of the early church, every once in a while, he'll just give these little reports like, and the word of God continued to spread and the word continued to advance. So that no matter what happened to the church, no matter their circumstances, they continued to do the basic things of worship and spread the gospel and, and to live the life of following Jesus, right? Um, and we are living in not the same, not even, I don't even want to say similar because we're not, Cause we're not under that kind of persecution. But this, this idea of holy discomfort, I think is absolutely right. And we have inherited a kind of Christianity that makes that odd and abnormal right. and when I, it should be it's like of course it should be the norm right of and of course that should be and i think like life. when we look at scripture especially when you look at the hebrew bible you know the times when the people of the covenant became the empire it didn't go well it never went well like so i i think this idea that you know what we need to recognize is a lot of things that seem normal to us as american christians when we make the gospel our context or even scripture as a whole our context they're not normal um and and so i think we don't but when we look at the culture surrounding us and a lot of times we let the culture teach us what jesus is and what the church is instead of i mean whatever instead of letting looking through the eyes of jesus and letting jesus teach us what the culture is so yeah, but I do, I love, I mean, I should say, I don't feel like I hear, I think you, you hang out with more biblically literate people than I do, but because I don't hear people talk about wanting to go back to the Church of Acts. But I mean, 
it's not just about persecution. It's also about, hey, what else did they do? They sold everything they had and lived in common. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was going on that I don't think people nowadays want want at all, right? I mean, just this radical nature of giving up every aspect of a, quote, normal life to be united with the Spirit, that that, Mm -hmm. that's what people were doing. I mean, they were all in. And we talk about this a lot, I don't know, on the podcast, but just in our friendship about we continue to want to see Jesus as like our spiritual Red Bull that will give us wings and, you know, just a couple extra inches we need to really live the American dream instead of understanding like, no, 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 the call is to to come and die and to die to all the things, even the things that feel good and comfortable that we are called to a radical, different life and a different community and, um, I just don't. I, I don't think that we under we understand that. Yeah, and one of the th- one of the reasons I love this idea of holy discomfort that you're talking about is, if we don't have that, then our default will be. I will only go as far. I will only trust Jesus as far as my comfort level will take me. Right. Once it becomes uncomfortable, well, then okay, I'm out. Right. And you can see how, I mean, again, when the enemy of our souls shows up in our lives, it will not be to make us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the temptation is do this thing and you'll be great. And then if you're over here and you're comfortable, you are not going to be going after Jesus and you're not going to be a part of the radical transformation of redemption in the world that God is doing because you're comfortable with the world as it is. Right. And so the trick is to want to be about the work of, to want to be used by God in the work of redeeming creation, but not from an animus towards creation, not, you know, hating the world, but loving the world so much that you like Jesus want to say, take all that I am and I trust you that all with all that I am and I want to be faithful to you no matter what it costs because I trust that grace transforms and and redeems the loss it's not even life or death kind of stuff I mean if I just take what you have been saying about holy discomfort and apply it to my ministry context we're wrestling with the use of the building Right. right. So we have rented space to uh, this group that is helping kids learn during this pandemic. And we're uh, uh, talking about a long term uh, relationship and establishing a preschool and lots of different things. And we haven't been in the building because of the pandemic. Our our fellowship center, you know, it's got a hall and classrooms and a kitchen and all that kind of stuff. And so. They have expanded, you know, their use of the building. Well, some of our beloved, wonderful church family members are anxious. Right. Because the question comes, well, what if, and I'm just making up a name, what if the Smith family, who left 10 years ago, want to rent the space to have a family reunion, but this group is there. Mm-hmm. It's it's that kind of you know, thing that we're wrestling with. Again, not life or death, but if it's all about comfort, if it's all about what's familiar, then you will miss um, the very thing the Holy Spirit is doing yeah. um, well, and it, in your midst. And the growth is uncomfortable, and Jesus is very clear. I mean, using that metaphor in the Gospel of John that, you know, 
vine and branches, right? Like it's fruit production is happening. And if you, you know, we don't, we don't produce fruit. We don't grow when we're comfortable. And so if, if what we're prizing is comfort above all else, then that's a spiritual coma. That's not coming alive in Christ. And I, I just think that's really, really hard because again, I think a lot of times the culture has malformed how we've heard the gospel and we've heard Jesus promising us comfort when what Jesus promised us was peace. Yes. And peace and comfort Mm -hmm. are not the same. Anyway, we are just still on astonishment. We need to move. (laughs) What are you thinking about? Uh, What am I thinking about? I need to look at my notes. I I've lost my notes. Um, Oh, well that was an awkward transition. We were talking on the walk a little bit about, um, inductive and deductive preaching and sort of how we manage that tension. Um, so I would not expect anyone who has not gone to seminary to understand the difference between inductive and deductive preaching, but uh, I went to seminary and I don't remember. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And I might explain this incorrectly, but, but basically deductive preaching is, is, is really teaching, right? Is when you sort of say, here is the scripture and here is what it means and here is how you apply it. Mm-hmm. Um, inductive preaching is when you say to people, here is the scripture, here is what it meant, here are the, here's what it meant in its time, here are the enduring and eternal truths revealed by the scripture. And then you trust the Holy Spirit to lead people to discern what application looks like in their lives. So an example, a a very broad and crude example would be deductive preaching would say, I'm going to preach this morning from 3 Timothy chapter 6. There is no 3 Timothy. Uh, I'm going to preach this morning from 3 Timothy chapter 6. And the election is next Tuesday. I'm going to preach, 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 preach. This is what it means. And so now you need to go and vote for candidate X. Mm-hmm. That's, that is a crude example of deductive preaching. Another crude example would be to say, I'm going to preach from 7th John about marriage. Preach, 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 preach. This is why you should never get a divorce unless scenario Y or Z. Or never, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Those are just examples of deductive preaching where the preacher says, this is what the Bible says in this instance. This is the truth. And this is how you apply it in your life. Absolutely. Right now, forever. Like, I'm going to tell you. So you don't, you don't, there's no, there's no particularity. You just, like, the Bible becomes a very big club that you just go out and whack things with it (laughs) well it just becomes um rules to follow right and and inert right Mm -hmm. it is a just it is an absolute that is the same in every scenario it is inert and also you know the danger of deductive preaching and there's dangers to inductive preaching too let me just be clear i'll get to them but the danger of deductive preaching is um that you you really teach people to put their trust in the preacher like only the preacher can tell me what scripture means um, or this leader can tell me what the scripture means um, but I you know I 
I can't, I, I can't discern this on my own. I can't, you know, anything that I hear, anything that I experience, I need to bring it back to the preacher and say, is this okay or is it not, right? So, I mean, you just see that in a lot of places. Like you see it in most recently, I think Saddleback ordained two female preachers, pastors, and Albert Muller of the Southern Baptist Seminary was like, no. You cannot do that because of these texts in Paul. Oh, that's right, because Saddleback is a Southern, Southern Baptist, Baptist right. church. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Muller comes forward and says, you know, a, gives a deductive teaching and saying, like, these verses exist in these Pauline letters, and that means you can't do this ever. It's wrong. And that ignores the reality that we all bring filters to the text. It does. And that sometimes we misinterpret, we misunderstand. And also, because the scripture is living, I can't say everything there is to say about a text. Well, I and it also, I mean, you use one text in a particular way and you say, then this speaks for the whole witness of scripture, when in fact it doesn't. Because I could find... 70 other texts that say, and I could preach deductively on them and saying, this is why Saddleback is right to do this, right? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. I, so whatever. But I mean, that's just an example of deductive preaching. Deductive preaching is when you, you um, unpack the text and then you say to people, this is how you use it mm -hmm. in the world. Absolutely. Inductive preaching is a different philosophy of preaching and you unpack the text you unpack your you what you perceive to be the truths um, that the text reveals about God um, and the nature of God, and and then you tell people to um, allow the Holy Spirit, you know, to guide you in the truth in your life. So a crude example of inductive preaching, well, not crude, I don't I mean whatever would be you know you. You, if there's an election se season coming up in your community, you would preach texts um, that reveal God's commitment to justice or God's commitment to care for the poor or God's commitment to neighboring. And then you tell people to go out and vote these values, right? So you don't tell people, choose candidate Y over mm -hmm. candidate X, right? Mm -hmm. You tell people, these are the values of God, and now I need you to take them forth and apply them in every decision that you make. And I need you to call upon the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you beyond your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding and, you know, live into these truths, right? And and I think that it is a posture of humility that the pastor takes by sort of saying, the, the scripture is true and the scripture is holy and the scripture is inerrant. I, however, am none of those That's things, right? right? Yeah. So um, I am a person who I, I really believe in inductive preaching. I think that the danger of deductive preaching is it's too easy to end up communicating more about your biases and more about your cultural um, assumptions than about the text itself. So I'm a big, I, I just think that that's the right thing to do. I think that if um, if I believe that it's wrong and I do, for people in one particular camp of the church to tell people how to vote, then then it's equally wrong for me to do it, even if I would 
tell them different candidates, right? That doesn't mean that, again, you have to preach scripture. So you're, it's always going to be political because the scripture is political, but it, whatever, the, the, uh, the, the line is political, not partisan, right? Mm -hmm. um, and to clearly, you know, and obviously this applies to elections and, you know, that sort of extreme, but it, it applies to every human sexuality. It applies to your, you know, um, spending choices. It applies to how, how you give. It applies to whether or not you drink alcohol. It I mean, like, just there's no aspect of life where you are not making decisions either in line with who you understand God to be or not. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for me, my understanding is we, again, are not called to be in sync with our church or with our pastor or with a doctrine or a theology, but in sync with the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. And so obviously the church and doctrine and pastors can help us learn to recognize who the Holy Spirit is. But ultimately what I want is for people to become more and more fused with the spirit of Jesus that lives in them um, so that we are able to see um, specks in our own eyes and logs in our you know, specks in our brother's eyes and logs in our own and, and all that sort of thing. Now, the danger of inductive preaching, and there is also a danger in that, is that, you know, there are times when, um, you know, when you need to make direct um, mm -hmm. connections. There are times. It's not all the time, but there are times when if there's an evil being done in the name of God, you you just need to call it out unequivocally and say, this is wrong. Um, and the other danger in inductive preaching is it can lead, when done poorly, it can lead to sort of a mamby-pamby, both sides, nothing really matters because everything is relative. And that is not true. And that's deeply dangerous, right? So I think, you know, it's it's not that you never do one or always do the other. And, and both are um, bad when done poorly. And both are, you know, can be really full of revelation when done well. And I think different preachers are sort of inherently wired mm -hmm. to do um, to do one kind more than the other. But I am an inductive preacher, um, and it's just interesting. You know, lately I've been listening to a lot of sermons and just noticing that, like, that's not that's not everyone's way, um, and just kind of wrestling with my own choices about, you know, am I should I be more deductive? Should I should I and I feel sometimes really conflicted about not um, not being more explicit, but I still just deeply believe that for transformation to happen, it has to happen because people are compelled by conscience and not by threat of think this way or you don't belong to us. Like you, you better get in line or you're out. Right? That 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 stick is very effective. And it can produce the appearance of righteousness, but not the actual um, unshackling of the soul that makes that makes new life possible. And so I think you still have to really, um, you know, respect that people can't walk righteously because the preacher, whoever says to them, this is what righteousness looks like. People have to understand the revelation of scripture and then let the Holy Spirit be the interpreter of what that looks like in their lives. So that's what Well, I'm the upside about. of deductive preaching is that in a time when there are so many voices mm -hmm. in people's ears, deductive preaching says, here's the clarity. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And sometimes people just need that. The power of inductive preaching is that, I mean, that the parables of Jesus are inductive. Correct. They force you to not only hear what's being said, but to think through, like, what, what does this mean? And I love, um, oh, what is his name? Tim Mackey uh, with the Bible Project reminds us that much of the Bible is uh, it's, uh, what he calls Hebrew meditation literature mm-hmm. in that the intent is to almost leave you with a cliffhanger so that you you ask questions. We're not told um, why God accepted um, Abel's offering and not Cain's offering in the book of Genesis. Why? So we ask that question and we keep reading. What? Who, who is this God and why is why why did this happen? And if we're always given think A B C, no X Y Z, then we we just kind of switch off and. Um, and it's we, like you we know, put we, that answer in a box and put it right. on a shelf and move on with our lives. Right, and yeah. we stop. It, it's it's a way of being shaped and spiritually formed when you have to think about it. Right, what's the um, text that says you know um, you talk about these things when you're when on you, your bed on your, and when you're yeah, when, when, when you're you walking, rise up it's, and when you yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. like you're supposed to be constantly. Um, chewing on these things, and that's what biblical meditation is. When, when, when the psalmist says in Psalm one uh, uh, th- that the psalmist meditates on the word, mm-hmm. it's just it's thinking about it, it's mulling it over uh, uh, in the mind over and over again because you don't have the answers, but you know that there's something rich here. And the more you chew on it, the more you think about it, the more. Um, the Holy Spirit begins to show you. Well, I think truth. that's that's exactly it. Like God meets us in our questions, not in our answers. And so, you know, there's so many just beautiful stories in Scripture that are frankly infuriating because there's just things. I mean, that Cain and Abel one is such a great example that I think as a younger and more sort of concrete thinker, and that story just annoyed me because you know why, 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 why? And like, mm-hmm. I want a better story. I want to understand. You know, why, you know, why, why Abel's and not Cain's? And why was God rude to refuse Cain? And why didn't God explain? And also, why didn't God off Abel? I mean, off Cain after yes. he, I mean, like just all of these questions that the, the Bible just refuses to answer. And we think, we think in our humanity, like the Bible would be better if it explained all these things. But the Bible, but God isn't interested in giving us answers. God is interested in having relationships with us, right? Is, is being reconciled with us and restored to right relationship. And again, what do, what is, Eve, what do Eve and Adam go after in the Garden of Eden? The knowledge of good and evil, right? Answers. And and what does God not want them to have? Answers because God wants to give them relationship. And too often when we have answers, we then no longer need God, right? We can, we know what righteousness is. We know what good is. We know what evil is. We can pick it for ourselves on our own and we move on with our lives. And that, you know, that is the great danger. And I think that is the problem with a lot of, um, people who have a faith that is really based in doctrine is that it really, you know, it becomes really honestly idolatrous, right? Like Mm -hmm. the idol is just this black and white inert God that you worship by proclaiming certain things and, um, you know, sacrificing maybe even your lived experience by saying like, no, I, I will agree with this even though, 
you know, I'll sacrifice my questions and my doubts and my discomfort. And, and there's no, there's no living relationship. And that's, you know, Anne Lamont, I, and I quote this all the time, talks about the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. And certainty is an idol. It's inert. It's, I know good. I know evil. I don't need God anymore. I don't have to wrestle. Um, so anyway. And just to be clear, we're not saying that there's no such thing as true. No, I, I, I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I, you know, I'll say, I believe that the whole of scripture is truth. Mm-hmm. I believe that the whole of scripture is the holiest and most sublime truth that humans are, are ever able to encounter other than the person of Jesus. Right. And I just believe that the reality is God's ways are beyond our ways. And so there's just always going to be this huge gap between w- the revelation we have and our understanding of it yes. on this side. of. So, so much of Jesus teaching is simple to understand but you must think through how to live it out. So when he says, love your enemies, who doesn't understand that? Yeah, but then you have to do the work of asking, working out, thinking through, figuring out what does loving my enemy look like in or, this situation or that situation? Or you have to artificially make it super super complicated so that it doesn't mean what the plain truth of it Mm -hmm. is like the danger of the gospel is not that it's complicated it's that it's simple right so you know i don't i mean again i'm clearly and this is no disparagement to people who are but like i've never really studied any other religions at all so i i don't know but i i know that you know there's this mystique that other spiritual traditions are much more you know erudite and sophisticated and you have to really you know you have to really um commit to a long process of coming into understanding and it's you know it's you know and and a lot of people really um a lot of western um people can really look down at christianity because it is so simple but that you know that is the power you you cannot misunderstand love your enemies you cannot misunderstand pick up your cross you cannot you know misunderstand you know come come and die and mm. that and and that is the fish hook right like you right. um that makes us accountable um so anyway inductive deductive preaching there's wow. your abstract preaching lesson but this is the kind of stuff i think about all the time because we are living in a moment in history where there's a real uh, there always is a battle for truth, but but it's just very visible right now. And you've got people yes. living in completely different ways, or at least advocating very different positions, who are claiming, as we said before, claiming to say, this is Jesus. This is what Jesus wants. If you don't agree with me, Jesus, you are... You, <laughs> well, and not only that, this, this permeates the whole of our society, right? Because part of the tension in education is, are we teaching kids to take the test or are we teaching them how to learn are we teaching them truth or are we indoctrinating them and what you know what is what is truth and what is indoctrination is got a lot to do with where you fall in the and political for the church, spectrum it's not just about the culture wars right i turn on so-called christian television and i see i hear um scam artists so i hear yeah. preachers actually say okay here are the reasons why uh, Armageddon is near. Doom, gloom and doom is near. And as soon as they teach that, then they switch to, 
Now, buy my freeze-dried, you know, Jerky. food. Yeah, yeah, and this this is a six-week supply of food. I'm like, wait, does anybody see what's happening here? Right. I mean, and that's why, you know, we started in the beginning talking about the gas shortage, and I was kind of joking, but nothing about it is funny. And also, I'm not mad at people who see something like that and go like, oh, this is one of the signs of the times that preachers deductively have told me, hey, Revelation, this letter has been around for 2,000 years, and it means this. It means this date, this time, here's what you do. And if you don't do it, you're going to die, and it's your own fault. You're going to suffer, and it's because you're unrighteous. But if you want to be righteous, yes, put a gas tank in your backyard, and when you hear of a gas station, go gas shortage go and fill it up right like i'm not mad at the people who are afraid and i'm not mad at the people who are doing what they've been told by people in authority is the only path to righteousness i'm not mad about that i i understand the vulnerability of that Mm -hmm. i'm not even mad Mm -hmm. at people who are caught in protecting a system that is destructive not only to their neighbors but to their own souls but they've been told by people in authority using the name of jesus that this this is decency, this is truth, this is safety, and to embrace anything else is um, a call to violence and destruction and anarchy. Like, I'm not mad at people for believing that lie. I'm mad at people who lie in the name of Jesus and mm. know better. I'm That is, again, like I used to, you know, you're 22 years old in seminary and you hear the teaching about, you know, uh, false teachers and stumbling blocks and a millstone around the neck and you're like, geez, it's a little harsh, Jesus. <laughs> like, I'm doing my best here. Yeah. But that's not if, you know, you don't properly highlight the meaning of, you know, the vine and the branches. That's if you willfully use the power of God to um, enrich yourself or um, deceive others. the destruction. Right, mm-hmm. like that. And that happens. And yeah. not accidentally. I think um, one of the softest places in my heart is for people, whether young or old, who have said that the church is no longer a place for them because for whatever reason they feel hurt, wounded, disappointed, even disgusted by the church. Like, I I get that. Yeah. Um, I, I care about that, which is, in, in many ways, why I preach the way I do. Um, like, I'm, I'm pretty careful. Sometimes I think too careful to say, okay, I'm saying this because the text says this. And, um, and often, I do not press application really hard because I want people to... Um, sit with the truth of what the scripture says, what it means. Now let's let's walk it out. Um, well, and I guess because ultimately, preaching is not about behavior modification. Yes, it's just I not. Agree. It's about whole heart transformation. I believe. Well, and it's. Oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I and interrupt I'm you all the time. Go terrible ahead. human being. Um, but I was listening in, um, it was an interview with, again, uh, Bishop uh, Curry um, yesterday, and he said, one of the things we have relearned during this pandemic because of Zoom services 
and many congregations have not been doing uh, communion. He says, one of the things we've rediscovered is the sacrament of the word. Mm -hmm. And that is, and, and by sacrament in the church, we mean a means of God's grace, God's working, God's power in the lives of people so that they experience, we experience Christ present with us, Christ active in us and more than us. they are. Yes. And so, um, yes, you're right. Preaching is not behavior modification. It is um, uh, by God's grace an experience of the beauty and the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. And, you know, and, and I remember the first time somebody said this to me and it really blew my mind in a way that was really helpful because I, you know, one reason that I am an inductive preacher is because I just have had my mind blown by the goodness of God so often when people unpack scriptures for me, that things I, I dreamed and hoped about God's goodness were revealed to be just to be a shadow mm. of the real goodness and tenderness of God towards me. So, so preaching has, the, the Bible has been such a sacrament to me, such a doorway to yeah. real life with God. Yeah. Um, but I remember I was at, in my, the first presbytery I belonged in to was the Boston Presbytery, which was super small, um, but was kind of nice because there was no infrastructure of staff and it was as an institution, it just wasn't a thing. What it was, was a community of the churches, right? A community of the pastors. It wasn't. And um, so when I first came to Charlotte, I was blown away by like, oh my gosh, there's like a building and a resource center and all these, you know, you can do this thing, all these mission trip, whatever. Um, and now I just see the beauty of the Presbytery in Boston um, in its spiritual power, in its simplicity. Anyway, they did this thing. They would do theology retreats once a year where pastors would just go away together for a day or two just to talk about wow. what we believe, right? Like it didn't have an agenda. We weren't going, you know, it was just about to say like, let's go away together and just talk about the resurrection. What is the resurrection? Mean, Imagine right? that. I was, pastors getting together to talk about spiritual things. Right. And just wow. to pray together and be together. I mean, it was really great. And, um, and I remember I was like lining up and I was young, um, brand new, newly ordained. So maybe, I don't know, 23, 24 and lining up with some other people to have dinner. And we were talking about scripture, blah, blah. And I don't remember who said it to me, but an older woman who was a pastor turned to me and was like, yes, but we don't worship the Bible. The Bible is not God. And I, I mean, duh, obviously I know that, but I realized that just in the way that I had been talking about scripture, I had been talking about it as an end because I love scripture so much sure. and I experience mm -hmm. so much mm -hmm. of God through scripture. And just to realize like, yes, this is the word of God, but it is not God. Mm -hmm. And it is the word of God, but it is not Jesus who is ultimately the word of God. Right. And so, you know, it's just this important thing to say scripture is a sacrament and it is not the fullness of God is as wonderful as it is, which means, you know, a lot of times it's not that we're, I was talking to another friend about this the other day. It's not even that we are holding on to the truth of scripture. It's that we are so um, committed to proclaiming the truth of our understanding of scripture. And these are two different things. Absolutely. There's the word. And then there's our understanding of word, our tradition around the word, our orthodox explanation of the word, you know, and, and so the word itself can be true, even though our understanding of it or the way we've used it has been deeply false. But I'm just saying, even, even when we get to, no, I'm talking about the word, not my understanding of it, but the word itself, which is holy and it is true, but it ain't God. And so there's just a fullness 
of the revelation of who God is that can't be captured or limited even to the word of God and all that it is. So listening, uh, listen, I was uh, um, listening to um, Eugene Cho preach yesterday. I know you sent and... me a text, <laughs> which I can't even repeat on our podcast. Admiration for how great the sermon Fantastic was. Fantastic <laughs> sermon. But, but this is what I'm thinking about, uh, and it's similar to um, your thing about inductive and deductive preaching. Uh, he was preaching um, the, the, the story of, uh, the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that story always makes me a bit uncomfortable, especially when you get to the part where Jesus says to her, you know, go get your husband. And uh, she says, I have five uh, husbands. Well, she says, and, I don't have a husband. And he yes, says, you spoke you have, the truth. Cause yes. you've had... And I was like, I, I really don't know what to do with that. And Because it sounds like Jesus is slut-shaming her. Yes. And he's like, look, that is about your biases. Yeah. That that's the bias you bring to the text. Right. Because listen, it could be that I mean cuz the t- Bible doesn't say why she had five husbands. It could be that they all died. It could be that they and and he gave uh some um uh historic text about, you know, how in that day um, a, a husband could divorce his wife just because he didn't like her hair or something like that. It's like, it could be that this was an abused woman over and over again. We don't know. And so... Um, we f- we and- read Jesus's condemnation into Jesus's statement, and yes. that's us. And But I mean, how many sermons have we all heard about, see how great God is that he loved her anyway. He loved her anyway. He loved her anyway. And it's we who put the anyway in there. That's not... Yes. Jesus at all. Yes, he unpacked that thing and that gets to the the beauty and power of scripture that you were talking mm-hmm. about. It, indeed, it is not God, but there is a beauty in it. And if you are willing to work, if you're willing to stay with it, if you're willing to drill down into the text, let the text read you. Let the Holy Spirit read you through the text. You may, you may walk with the Scripture with a lot of biases, but slowly over time, yep. your eyes will, will be, be open opened. more and more. And you'll see more and more of the beauty. Not all well, at once, but it will over happen. Time. And we yes. don't, like, it's us that needs it to be all at once. Yes. Like, God's mm-hmm. time is like not I, our time. And, and that's part of the temptation of deductive preaching because you want to say okay church here is the download you need to know a b and c i don't care if you believe it just do it right and i i mean i think and this is where this really all came from and why i started thinking about inductive and deductive is i was having a conversation with a member of our church and um they were talking about um critical race theory Mm -hmm. and and expressing some concern that when we came back together, I mean, I think it, it wasn't this explicit, but sort of saying like, we we can't just be talking about critical race theory. That's too divisive. And I want to say like, I mean, putting aside the conversation that the culture war is having about critical race theory, I don't care what you think about critical race theory. I care that you know the gospel. Mm. And I am confident that as radical as anybody might accuse whatever their conception of critical race theory, as radical as people might be telling you 
that is, I promise you the gospel is more radical. Mm. I promise you. Mm -hmm. I know that for sure. And what I, I mean, to your point about like, if we are pursuing the scripture as a sacrament, then there is no place that God is alive and at work in the world that the scripture will not take us. And, and it's not about importing some think tank's agenda. Like, I promise you, there is nothing more radical than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I don't need to, you know, and I think that's a lot of, you know, people are uncomfortable with the prophets as the people of God have always been uncomfortable yeah. with the prophets, right? Yeah. Like Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, right? Yeah. So the idea that the faithful people will be uncomfortable with the prophets of God, like that is not new news. <laughs> and and people of faith ought to understand that if you read the actual scripture, you got to be careful that are you offended at this person because they are wrong or or are you like your ancestors offended by the truth of God as it is applied in your concepts and in your context and getting ready to stone the messenger like this happens over and over again so maybe this person is a crackpot maybe but maybe it's you (laughs) and that's something that we all need to live with that deep deep tension which gets us back to the very beginning which is our faith can't be in our righteousness our faith has to be in our relationship with Jesus and this idea that Jesus is our good shepherd and will you know has a um, rod and a staff to lead us in and out of danger um, and has to be in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray which is don't lead me in temptation because like I I know how weak I am. So um, and deliver me from evil because I know it's not even that. I mean, I do want to be delivered from evil in all ways. But I think we think of that as like, don't let anything evil happen to me. But I really I mean, the scarier thing is like, do not let me become an instrument of evil because I know that that people that that happens. And it's not because those people are worse than me. Right. It's not because they're different than me. Right. So anybody can become an instrument of evil. Please, Jesus, don't let that be me. Right. And and let me and let me always live with the awareness that if I do not become an instrument of evil, it's because you answered my prayer, not because I'm righteous. So one of the things that gets under my skin is when I hear Christians, whether they consider themselves conservative or progressive or whatever, is I hear Christians um have a certain kind of admiration isn't the right word. It's almost jealousy of other faiths and their disciplines or their sense of mystery. Um, and I'm like, you, you don't even know your own tradition. Correct. You don't, you don't get like, oh, there's, there, there are these mysterious sayings of, of Taoism. And uh, uh, if you are, <laughs> if you're a Muslim, then you, 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 you pray these times a day. And it's like, you, you are, totally under the form of christianity that you have inherited really is almost kind of um just a a, a transactional Correct. if you believe then you're saved right enough said you but, are dissatisfied with the marketing of christianity yes and i say to you good 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 because there is that a, was never there's it. a depth and a mystery if you just sit with some of the sayings of jesus some of the parables you will scratch your head and f- spend the rest of your life trying to understand, okay, what exactly did he mean? And the only thing more uncomfortable than not understanding what Jesus meant is when <laughs> is when you all of a sudden do and you're like, oh, oh my gosh, this 
radically yes. reorients yes. everything. And there and I said, and that's both exciting and scary and terrifying. And because I've been saying a lot lately, tongue in cheek, but not really, as I'm just trying to live authentically and with integrity in terms of my values that like man I hate my values like I hate them <laughs> because I am continually choosing to do things mm. that I don't want to do mm. but because I know what these values are and I know that they're not based on what myself thinks would be pleasurable or expedient but just like you know and i think it yeah, paul said the love of christ compels, compels me. us right and also just this trusting in like okay like traveling with these people or bearing with in love with these people just really seems like a bad organizational choice <laughs> and yet I cannot pretend that I do not understand the values of the kingdom. So I'm going to continue to walk in this way of great inefficiency, even when there's pushback within my own community. Yeah. Right. And I just am like, I don't know what to, I don't even need to defend myself. I get it. You think that I don't know any better and you may be right. <laughs> But I just, um, I see the kinds of ways that Jesus interacted with people, welcomed them before they were ready, sent and empowered them to do ministry that they had no business doing. Yeah. And was not afraid of failure, but saw failure as a necessary step on a journey of transformation and so we got a lot of failure in front of us and a lot of ways i don't know this this conversation has just gotten really theoretical but i just i mean it is really interesting like our values are not like sunshine and light and let me choose chocolate ice cream instead of vanilla like a lot of it is like oh gosh i know very well what this looks like to um minds of people who love jesus but don't um well your values i don't want to say force but that might be the best word they force you to walk up a narrow way right and right some and even and, and you're conflicted because there's part of you that wants it that loves it and part and of me is like there is a big wide smooth path right over right. here why yes. do i do this but i think and i told you this on our walk today i really um I mean, I woke up in the middle of the night last night and, and which is unlike me, just had this revelation that even as I'm saying this, and I found myself saying this to myself and friends a lot recently, like, I, I mean, I'm joking, but I'm not really joking. Like, I really hate my values. Like, I really hate them. And then I really, I woke up in the middle of the night and realized, oh gosh, like too much at the center of my faith, of my life with Jesus right now is about these values and that's not it. I wasn't called to come alive to these values. I wasn't called to be faithful to these values. Then the center of my life needs to be enjoying, you know, enjoying God forever is, is mm -hmm. communion with Jesus, is relationship with Jesus. And when you center the values, even if they're the right values, 
you don't get life. So, I, I mean, I just have some things that are out of whack. And that's okay. I mean, failure is part of the process. So we, we need to get back on track because this has become way too... I, I am not here for therapy. Two pastors <laughs> take a walk and get <laughs> theoretical. Um, are, you, are we still at what you're thinking about? Yes, we've done what I'm thinking about. We have done what you're yes. thinking about. Okay. I, what? I was thinking about um, Eugene Cho and his oh, okay. sermon, okay, good, and good. I didn't say everything uh, about that sermon that's on my mind, but um, I said the main thing I wanted to say. And it was... I, I wish they were putting this on YouTube. I don't. I don't think they are. But if you have an opportunity to listen to Eugene Cho at the Festival of Homiletics, I know they have some things from previous years on YouTube. You should listen to his sermon on um, the woman at the well. What are you preaching about, friend? This Sunday is one of my favorite Sundays of the year and relevant to everything we've been talking about yes. this whole podcast this sunday is pentecost sunday we celebrate the gift of the holy spirit to the church and um i think it was francis chan who a number of years ago uh wrote a book called um forgotten god about mm -hmm. the holy spirit that uh, we really do not pay enough at least in our corner of the body of Christ, to the Holy Spirit, um, because we have all sorts of biases about um, groups that do. Um, and fetishes about control, which the Holy Spirit will expose. Yes. So I was scrolling through my YouTube feed um, the other day, and I saw a posting by Asbury Seminary. Uh, they do this thing called Seedbed, and... Um, one of their professors was, um, uh, she was giving uh, a sermon and I just saw the title and I decided not to listen to the <laughs> sermon because the title is so good yeah. that I know it's just going to influence me too much for yeah. Sunday. Yeah. But uh, the title, and I think I want to use this metaphor on Sunday, which is why I'm mentioning this. The title was Removing the Holy Spirit firewall mm. so that, you know, in, in the, you know, the language of technology and computers, a firewall is put up to keep bad things out. What yep. we perceive bad things, you know, uh, in the technology, computer world, internet world, a firewall keeps bad things out and lets good things in. And we can have, we do have, a Holy Spirit firewall, and not a firewall mm -hmm. built by the Holy Spirit, but a firewall within us that says, okay, if if it brings me a level of comfort and it's from the Holy Spirit, then I perceive that as good and I'll let that in. If it seems too out of control, too unmanageable, too whatever, then that part of the Holy Spirit's work, uh, I yeah. think I'll keep it at arm's distance. And... Um, I'm like, yeah, we need to remove the Holy Spirit firewall because if we just take the whole of Scripture and if we believe that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that led Israel through the desert, the Spirit of God that breathed life into Ezekiel's dry bones, the Spirit of God that fell on the day of Pentecost that enabled the apostles and those who were not ordained to to anything to do the miraculous in the early church. If that Holy Spirit is in and among us, 
Well, then, um, clearly, our firewall is um, saying, Holy Spirit, mm, we don't want you to do much uh, mm-hmm. among us. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, and this is, I mean, the Spirit, I mean, we see this again and again in Scripture, that God calls us deeper into freedom and abundant life. And that sounds great to us when we are enslaved and it sounds terrible to us when we are mm, profiting off of the empire and you know, like the call to radical otherness and radical change. I mean, this is why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into heaven. Cause new life in the kingdom sounds great. If you are, poor and mm. suffering and have no reasonable chance at flourishing in the world as it is. But if you are flourishing in the world as it is, then it is really hard to hear the call to the kingdom as good news. And it is really tempting to believe that the kingdom of God is what you already have. Mm. And it's God's will that you keep what you already have, which is what I hear a lot. I mean, it's a lot of the um, Christian nationalists, like the, the theology is, we live in the kingdom of God, let's protect it. And I would say, friends, if you lived in the kingdom of God, you wouldn't need to protect it. Um, Anyway. Mm. Well, what are you preaching? I am preaching uh, the next part of Nehemiah. um, And it will be Pentecost, but, and I will acknowledge that, but also these days are a construct. Okay. So I really think we're going to celebrate Pentecost um, on the day that we return to in-person worship on June 6th, I think. Um, but I'm excited for this Sunday because um, it comes to the part of the story of Nehemiah where the work of rebuilding the city is actually completed. And Nehemiah does this very curious thing. He calls all the people together and the priests and Ezra and, and, the, and he reads the covenant to the people. And he leads them through... Um, community act of repentance and he says to them now that the city is rebuilt and now that the work of repair is done um, let's remember how we got here and let's remember that we didn't get here because everybody else was so evil and more powerful we didn't get here because we were so righteous and weak we got here because we turned away from God and Mm. we turned away from the covenant and we invited this destruction into our lives. Um, and let, now that we've rebuilt the physical structure, let's repair our covenantal relationship with God. And, um, I think that that's so, there's so much to learn from Nehemiah in that moment that the people really had been victimized. Um, and, and this is not true for all situations of suffering and victimization, but, but in their case, some of that was very undeserved suffering and some of it was suffering that they had chosen and earned. Right. And so for him to say, I don't just want to, um, rebuild the city without helping people learn the truth about their own history. And what I think is so remarkable about scripture that we don't see because we don't read the whole of scripture and we don't notice is, um, you know, the God's people kept a record of their unfaithfulness <laughs> yeah. and called that holy. Yeah. And, and they wanted to preserve. 
I mean, like you read the book of Kings and it's just like this king was an ass and this king was an ass, but not as big of an ass as this king. And I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's the Kate Murphy translation, but like it's accurate, right? Like, yes. I mean, it was just a list yes. of all of the unfaithfulness. of Because the, they knew God was faithful. Right. And they, and, but I mean, I think like there's this, this temptation. I mean, they kept a record of times when they were faithful as well. And they also kept a record of, of, uh, of exceptions, right? Mm -hmm. But they told the truth yeah. about their unfaithfulness. And, you know, it's amazing to me that we have the prophets at all because most of the prophets were showing up and not saying, I mean, with the exception of Nahum, they were not showing up and saying, like, our enemies are unfaithful. They were showing up and saying, we're unfaithful. And then we have a preservation of the reaction of the moral majority is, who you call an unfaithful sucker? Yeah. Go to prison. Right. Like that's what happened again and again. Now, there was a faithful remnant who recognized the truth of the prophecies, even though it was uncomfortable and preserved it. And that has become our scripture. But I think just Nehemiah's brilliance and it's not just enough to do the physical repair work. We have to do the deep spiritual work of repair, which comes from knowing the truth about ourselves that is that we have chosen to forget. Mm. And you don't choose to forget your highlight reel. Right. And that so that is something I just think is so clear in Scripture. And I think that many American Christians have not absorbed this lesson and are deeply threatened by this idea of uncovering truth. And I think if we understood truth in you know, I just yeah, again, well, and this is where the temptation between inductive and deductive preaching is, you know, it's it's like how how much do I want to draw those lines? But I think you know, not very. To just say we are not afraid of truth, yeah. and we know that we grow not by remembering our successes, but remembering our failures, yeah. and we do not have faith in our own righteousness. We have yeah. faith in God's righteousness, and we know that we do not belong because we're righteous. We belong because God is faithful. So if something is true, we don't fear it, you even know, if it's a true record of our sin. Part of the brilliant work of Nelson Mandela in South Africa, and they still have a lot of work to do down there, but part of, his, part of that brilliant work was the Truth in Reconciliation Commission. Mm -hmm. Let's tell the truth about what has happened. Um, and I am, I, I'm so disappointed. I shouldn't be surprised, but I am. The number of leaders in this country who are um, opposed to um, uh, the 1619 Project to mm -hmm. tell the truth about um, the, the history of the transatlantic slave trade, right? So what you're left with is the story of, oh, we were under religious persecution in Europe. We came to this country and God gave us this land and here we are. Now we're the greatest nation in the world. Like, wait, you're leaving out a lot of things. Let's tell the truth, the right. whole truth. And I, I'm amazed that there are... Um, like I will, I will go to my parents' house uh, this Fourth of July, and my parents will have red, white, and blue decorations. Um, um, I have uncles, military vets, and we will we will barbecue and celebrate, and and it's just I don't know. There's this 
there's this push and pull as an African American, right? So there's there there are some values about the country that we love and some history that we celebrate, and there's this unacknowledged truth. Well, and it shouldn't be. I mean, I think it is often that push and pull goes down racial lines, but it shouldn't. I mean, any as any human, we can, like our Hebrew ancestors, grieve the times when we and our nation have been unfaithful to God's covenant. Um, we can recognize, actually, that God did not make a covenant with America, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that didn't happen. <laughs> but we can recognize when we as people have put our citizenship put our national citizenship above our citizenship. We can just, we can say, we can acknowledge the truth about our ancestors and that does not require saying they were worthless. It does not require saying nothing of value has ever happened here. It does not require saying God wasn't with them, right? Like this is the amazing revelation of scripture is that the Hebrew, the Hebrew people were able to say both, we are the chosen people. We are the apple of God's eyes. God has made promises to us. God has been with us. God has blessed us. And... We have been deeply unfaithful. We have been wicked. We have betrayed. Like, we could say both those things. Yes. And I feel like the one of the reasons that we are so afraid of acknowledging the truth about our past is because we feel like implicitly telling the truth means we're saying there was nothing good. There was no one mm. of value. There is no, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to say that. You can tell the truth about the the failures and the violence and the brutality and that doesn't mean you can't also tell the truth about the goodness and the brilliance and the that's worthiness. Good. You you know, that's certainly what scripture bears witness to, right? And so, again, I don't expect non-Christians to be able to do that. I mean, I'll, I just, I don't even, well, whatever. I'm not talking about non-Christians. I'm saying that if we say we are a people of this book, Mm-hmm. then it's not new news that we're sinners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not new news that God judges the nations. And it's not new news that people God loves can be deeply unfaithful. And the path to righteousness comes by acknowledging that unfaithfulness, mm. repenting of it, and being transformed, right? That mm. is the path. And as the people who perceive Scripture as being inerrant and true and holy, we ought to be leading the way on this, not not resisting. resisting. It. So... Um, yeah, and I just think Nehemiah is a great, and again, like, I didn't write Nehemiah. I didn't write it. You didn't? I didn't. What? I absolutely did not. I didn't decide that there ought to be a scene in there where they stand on the repaired walls and they acknowledge their sinfulness in the path, some of which is literally about debt slavery, right? Like, wow. I didn't I didn't put that there. So I don't know what you don't, want from me. Don't blame me. <laughs> just saying, do what you want with it. Maybe I'm wrong to think that it's applicable. Apply it any way you want to. I'm just wow. saying it's here in this book and we're accountable to it. And more importantly, we're accountable to the God beyond it. Sure. Wow. Uh, we should stop talking. <laughs> I mean, we probably won't. You say that every week. I know, we should stop talking. We should really stop talking. And if you are still listening to this, gosh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I'm astonished. Hey, listen, we have quite a few SoundCloud listeners. I've been checking the analytics, and I'm I'm so grateful for people who, um, I don't know if they're part of any church or faith community, but um, I've just noticed a a lot of listens from people in the SoundCloud community, and and some who have liked us and um, uh, and and who follow us. 
and it's it's so interesting to see in 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 some of the profiles they'll just be you know a dozen you know hip hop um uh artists and then two pastors take a walk it 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 really blesses my soul and so thank you for well, we're really uh, glad those who listen. really glad that you listen yeah. i prefer not to look at any of the analytics <laughs> just to pretend that you and i are just sitting here talking um thank you for listening like it really is a gift to us and um it's a gift to have your time and attention and if you want to find out more about the work that god is doing um at Yolando, the church Yolando serves. Do you see how I did that? Not Yolando's church. It's yes. not Yolando's it's church. It's not my church. It's the church Yolando serves. I did not die and rise for it. Um, it is called Derida Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you, their website is deridapres.org. That's correct. And you can find and binge uh, Yolando's old sermons. He's getting ready to feed me the name of the website on the Derida Church uh, uh-huh. podcast, which is hosted on Podbean. You got Podbean, it. Podbean, I got it. And you can worship with them on Sundays um, on their YouTube channel, the Derida Prez YouTube channel. And if you want to find out more about the work that God is doing um, in the community, I serve uh, thegrovecharlotte.org um, is our website. And you can find old messages, timeless, but old wow. messages, okay. timeless, <laughs> uh, at our um, podcast, which is the Grove Church podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and you can worship with us on the live stream on our Facebook, um, uh, which is the the Grove Church. And there's lots of Grove Churches. Go figure. So look for one with the green tree in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, check out our new AV equipment. It's going to be really interesting to see what the heck happens on Sunday because I have no idea and I'm sorry I just shouted at you. Uh, But thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week.